afternoon. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County, welcoming you to the July 2023 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show broadcast the second Monday of each month on WPKN 89.5 FM, bringing you news and information about the arts and culture across coastal Fairfield County. This month, we're turning the spotlight onto nine of the cultural organizations in our region that recently won the very competitive Good to Great grant awarded by the Connecticut Department of Economic and Community Development. This grant is one of the most creative and competitive grants the state of Connecticut has to offer arts, cultural and history organizations. It's a capital grant enabling them to make transformations to their property that will radically improve the visitor experience. Jointly administered by the Connecticut Office of the Arts and Connecticut Humanities, the grant is awarded to, as Liz Shapiro, head of the Office of the Arts, put it, organizations of all sizes who demonstrate deep thinking about who they are as organizations and what they could be if granted access to capital funding. 34 organizations across the state received a total of $7 million through this grant, and nine of them are in our region and are members of the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. So we thought this a great opportunity to shine a light on these nine quite different organizations, the work they do, and how they'll be using their grants. So our guests today, in alphabetical order of the organizations they represent, are Sibel Malone with the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield, Peter Gistelink with the Avon Theatre Film Centre in Stamford, Kathy Marr with the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Tracy Kay with the Bartlett Arboretum and Gardens in Stamford, Howard Lasser with the Brookfield Craft Centre, Hilary Whitman with the Carriage Barn Art Centre in New Canaan, Claire Murray with Carty, based in Shelton, Maggie Dimmock with the Greenwich Historical Society, and Steve D. Costanzo, General Manager here at the WPKN radio station in Bridgeport. Now, most of our guests will be on the phone today, although we do have Kathy Ma and Steve D. Costanzo here in the studio with us. So let's start with Sibel. Sibel Malone, who is Executive Director of the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield. Sibel, welcome. Thank you so much, David. And of course, congratulations on this on this grant. So, uh, first, thank you. Please tell us about the Aldridge um, when it was founded, what it does. Sure. So the Aldrich was founded in 1964 in Ridgefield, Connecticut, by a collector of contemporary art named Larry Aldrich, who was a resident of the community and wanted to bring the work of artists of his time um, to the daily lives of people in the, in the area. Um, so as opposed to building, he was very involved with museums in New York City, uh-huh. but as opposed to kind of being a part of or building more of those organizations that might appeal to, say, tourists and people as they traveled around the country and around the world, he wanted to put um, the, uh, the museum that he would go on to found in the community where he lived um, to, to, to serve a local audience, um, but, but do that with art 
um, and artists from around the world. So we mm. remain a contemporary art museum to this day. So while almost 60 years have passed since the museum was founded, we are still presenting the work of artists of our time. Um, and so the museum has a very long history of showing artists oftentimes very early in their careers, right. giving them yes. their first significant opportunity to show their work in mm. a museum um, through solo exhibitions. And then we also present um, surveys of more established artists, along with large group exhibitions about kind of timely ideas or themes. Um, and we, you know, the museum was founded in the 60s in a building that is now our offices, which is a, a, a former general store. But in 2004, the museum inaugurated a new purpose-built museum building, um, which is where all of our exhibitions and programs take place. It's great. One of my favorite spaces in the in the state, I think. It's a really wonderful space. Well, thank you. Um, now, you were awarded $500,000 to completely redo your campus, a beautiful rolling green space that I know you've used for sculpture in the past. Tell us what your project is that will change the way that visitors experience the museum. Sure. So, um, when the museum was founded, actually, Larry Aldrich um, purchased this roughly three-acre property in Ridgefield and, and from the very beginning was presenting work both inside the museum and presenting works of sculpture outdoors. Um, again, part of the spirit to bring contemporary art um, to, the, uh, to a broad audience and, and making it accessible by putting it, you know, kind of right. um, taking works of art outside of a white box and, and presenting <laughs> them in nature. And so the museum has continued to do this and um, in recent years presented work um, for, we had a very large Frank Stella exhibition that presented works throughout our three acres. We had a show last year called 52 Artists, a Feminist Milestone that presented works of art outdoors. Um, but we... I would say the museum had identified several years ago, but the, the pandemic really deepened our understanding of this, that our outdoor spaces were an incredible asset to mm -hmm. the museum, an incredible mm -hmm. asset to artists and to the public. And they were, we saw the use of them really skyrocket. Um, but that we also did not have a site that was truly accessible. And so that made both oh. the visitor experience very difficult. Yeah. Um, and it also limited what we were able to present. So the number of artists we were able to work with, the kinds of work we were able to, to present. Um, you know, we really think of our campus as starting on Main Street and then going back behind the museum where we do, as you note, have this kind of beautiful open space. Um, and there are no pathways um, that connect Main Street um, to, to the garden itself, and then there are no pathways within the garden. And we have significant grade changes. Um, we have a lot of invasive species. Um, we have some staircases. So, you know, we really understand, we kind of saw the use, the kind of response we were getting from our audience and from artists was what an amazing thing that the museum has that we want to take advantage of. Mm. But we also saw that we were really limited in, in how we were able to, to support these groups because of, of some of these challenges. Um, and so we started work on um, developing a master plan with a Cambridge, Massachusetts-based landscape architecture firm called Stimson. Um, and I've been working with them over the last two years to develop a plan that really unites the entire campus, um, the two buildings that we have, and our entire open space um, to make it 
a, a truly accessible um, environment for the public. And so we were we went to the state. Um, kind of in it, we're in an early phase of the project. We hope to begin work later in the fall of mm-hmm. this year. Um, but our you know we'll be we'll be fundraising rather aggressively <laughs> to to make this project a reality. Um, and so the significant support from the state um, it certainly is I think both incredibly generous and important funds and towards the larger project and I think also is a real statement of support um, from the state and as you note this was a competitive process that kind of speaks to the importance of this project the work that we're doing and and how um, this project really looks to to better serve our community and so we hope that that inspires other people to participate in in supporting the work. When will you expect or what's your hope for opening date? (laughs) So we hope um, we hope we're still kind of you know making our way through uh, the approvals process which is uh, why we haven't released a huge amount of information about this just yet Um, but we hope to begin construction in the fall and and we anticipate um, the construction will take about a year Mm -hmm. and I will say one of the things that I've learned about landscape projects is that even when you know active construction is concluded that you know some of the things um, planting um, might still then take place a year, you know, kind of um, a year later. So that this will be a project that will be ongoing for some time. But really, I think the bulk of the work we hope to, to, to complete in a year. Terrific. Well, congratulations again. And thank you very much for joining us today, Sibel. And I look forward to this uh, wonderful new project coming to fruition. Wonderful. Thank, thank you. you so much, David. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Next, we'll move to Stamford with Peter Gisterlink, the brand new executive director of the Avon Theatre Film Centre. Welcome, Peter. Welcome to the community and to Connecticut. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to meeting you. You've only been on the job uh, how many days? <laughs> oh, my God. It's like three days, I guess, right? Three days. <laughs> right. <laughs> So the Avon is our only art house movie theater in, in, in the region, a very, uh-huh. very precious resource. Um, for those in our audience who don't, don't know it, um, Peter, can you give us a brief thumbnail sketch of the Avon as you understand it? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's got a very long history. It, it was basically uh, designed about over 80 years ago. If I'm not mistaken, it was in uh, 1939. Uh, they showed their first movie and uh, actually was was created by a renowned architect from New York City, William Hohauser, and then built by the F.D. Rich Company. And it it's F.D. Rich Company, but it, it 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 changed a lot of hands over the years, and then it it had an uncertain future, kind of in the 20th century. It closed its doors in 1999, and then oh my goodness, uh, I didn't know that. 2001, the Royce Family Foundation purchased its. Uh, purchased the Avon Theatre and then basically uh, they made a very ambitious effort to restore the whole building and, and update the systems, etc. So, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's an amazing theatre. We have two theatres. It's obviously very historical and uh, we're, we're very, very uh, thankful and grateful for this grant because uh, we also are embarking on a $9 million campaign to basically uh, restore the whole... Uh, the whole Avon Theatre, which is here, as you know, downtown uh, yes. Stanford. Yes, on Bedford Street. So tell us uh, briefly about your project, uh, which I understand is basically refashioning one of your two auditoriums. 
Well, actually, it's refreshing the whole building. I mean, we have oh. two theaters, as you know, now. We're going to add a third screen. We need third, three theaters oh, because really? that will allow us to create more diverse programming and be a little bit, you know, when you have two theaters, you're kind of limited with your programming. <laughs> Uh, but we'll have the new seats and new projectors. I had a, a very, very good uh, meeting this morning with uh, with Barco, which is the leading uh, company in the world of digital projections. They have oh. a new technology with with uh, three-dimension screening, etc. Oh. New audio systems, new seats, making sure that we're completely up to date with the ADA. And a lot of more. A lot of more. It's basically refurbishing in depth from top to bottom the whole uh, the oh. whole building. So this grant is part of the of a general refashioning of the whole theatre. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what's the timeline for the project? When will we notice uh, some change? Well, to we'll, the we'll, well, we're we're planning to close late twenty twenty four. And the project, the whole project is going to take about 12 months, maybe up to 15 oh. months. We think rather 12. And then we're, right. we're opening by the end of 2025. What is important, though, is that we're working on a plan to keep the Avon Theatre open within the community, which basically means we will offer hmm. films, movies uh, around town. And Excellent. It's really, really important. So it's not uh-huh. that we can't disappear <laughs> for a year. Right, right. Well, that's terrific. Well, Peter... Um Thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on, on the grant and good luck with uh, its implementation. And I look forward to meeting you shortly. Same here. Yes. Thank you okay. so much. Bye-bye. Now we're moving further south to Greenwich. And we welcome Maggie Dimmock, who is curator of exhibitions and collections at the Greenwich Historical Society. Founded in 1931... The Greenwich, Arts, uh, Greenwich Historical Society has quite a long and interesting history. Um, Maggie, um, welcome to our Thank show you, today. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. So can you tell us some of the, very briefly, some of the highlights of these past 90 years, the buildings you've restored and constructed, and especially about the Bush Holly House, which I think will be the focus of your Good to Great project? Yes, that's right. Um, so, yeah, as you, you mentioned, the Greenwich Historical Society has a long history. We just it was our 90th anniversary year last year in 2022. Um, and it's true. We've gone through some changes. I mean, at our at our heart, we're a history museum with uh, artifact and artwork and archival collections. We have an ongoing exhibition program. I mean, our broad mission is to preserve and interpret local history, Greenwich history with an intention towards strengthening our community's connection to, as we say, our past to Mm -hmm. each other and to our future. Um, But since 1957, the Historical Society has been headquartered in the Cobb section of Greenwich. And that's because in that year, which is about 65 years ago, the Historical Society acquired the, the house that we now call the Bush Holly House. Um, it's a large historic house. The oldest parts date back to about 1730, and it's located on the waterfront of the Cobb Harbor. And that house, um, as you say, the, the Bush Holly House is really at the center of this good to great project. And, and that the legacy of the Bush Holly House and its story is still really central to mm-hmm. our visitor experience. You know, we, we've changed a lot in the intervening decades. We have grown. We now have, you know, state-of-the-art museum galleries, a beautiful museum and library. Um, but the Bush Holly House and the story of the people who lived and worked there is really central to what we do. 
So just, I mean, the sort of the briefest version of the history of the house I can give is that it's named today, you know, in honor of two families who lived there across a period of time that spans about 200 years. And so Mm -hmm. that's the Dutch mercantile family that was headed by David Bush and his wife, Sarah Bush. They lived in that house beginning in about 1755. Their son, Justice Luke Bush, and his wife, Sally, also lived there um, until about 1844. So that's about 100 years that the Bush family lived there. Um, They lived there through the American Revolution. David Bush was imprisoned for two months in 1779 on suspicion of loyalty to the British. Um, The Bush household and its businesses were also very dependent on enslaved labor. And we know today that um, there were at least 15 enslaved people who lived and worked in the Bush household. And then the house is also named in honor of the Hollies. So that's Josephine and Edward Holly, who lived there beginning in the 1880s, early 1882. And they ran the house. Um, it was a big old house at the time, even then, and they ran it as a boarding house. So they rented out rooms and, and meals for paying guests. And while they were doing that during that time, about 1890, beginning early 1890s, the house became really a favorite lodging place for a group of New York painters and artists who were painting in what then was the very, very new American Impressionist style. So these were, yeah, painters like Child Hassam and John Henry Twachtman, J. Alden Weir, uh, Theodore Robinson. And these, I mean, these are the artists that really formed the core of what today we refer to as the Cuff-Cobb colony of American Impressionism. Mm. It was Connecticut's first Impressionist art colony. Um, And so really the, the Holly's boarding house was a central place the formation of that art colony and today it's been designated a national historic landmark in honor of that important legacy to the history of american art so it's interesting you um tell then two core stories the story of the revolutionary war and of the enslaved people but -hmm. also of the connecticut impressionist movement. We do. Yeah. yeah. So visitors today, when they come to visit, um, the, we do, we offer guided tours of the Bush Holly House and it does, it follows this tool. We call it a dual period interpretation. Oh, so uh-huh. the story is interweaved through one visit where you're sort of traveling mm. forward and backward in time and getting to learn a lot about local history, about the people who lived there and also kind of placing our local history in a broader context. So tell us briefly, please, about the, about your project. Congratulations again on the award and the difference it will make to our experience of the historical society as a whole. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks. No, we're, we're really excited. Um, the project itself, I mean, it's at, at its very core, it's an environmental and climate control upgrade project. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to be doing a big comprehensive update to the climate control systems in the Bush Holly House trying to make sure that the continued stewardship of all of the historic furnishings, um, original artworks that are so crucial to our bringing that story, especially of of the Cobb colony to life, um, making sure that they're properly managed in a way that's up to date with modern museum standards, um, but also really improving our visitor experience. Um, I mean, in in really simple terms, the Bush Holly House does have a modern furnace system that was installed, you know, back in the 1960s and it's been updated since then, but it currently doesn't have any internal cooling systems, any integrated cooling. So, you know, I do remember uh, a visit there myself where everybody was sweating. Um, That will make a big difference, I think. If you came, if you come right now, we all know we've had a really hot week here. So, yeah, it gets hot. It gets hot in there, especially in the summer months. 
So we do, I mean, we do implement, implement what we call passive control measures just to kind of try to keep the temperatures more manageable. I mean, we have a window, we have window shades, we have um, filters on all the windows. Yeah. We do have, you know, air movement, but it's, and we, we carefully monitor the temperature and the humidity in the house. Um, but that's, that's as much as we've been able to do. And it gets very hot right. and that's not, it's not only not, not great for our collections, but not great for our visitors either. And what's the timeline so, for the project? When will we expect? Well, be- right now we're still kind of working it out. I mean, I think we know that the earliest we'd probably be able to really get going on this wouldn't be until sometime in, in later 2024. And mm-hmm. we want to be really careful, you know, yes, as, as Peter course. was saying about the, the Avon Theater, you know, in making sure that any closures that we are, are going to be taking are done so sort of strategically. We have so many school programs and, and other right. visitors that really rely on being able to visit mm-hmm. this house as a major part of their curriculum. Um, the other the other part of this and a major impact that I think we're really excited about is obviously, I mean, this is this is going to be a giant step forward just in terms of, of how we can present this house and the level of care we give to our collections. But it also just the, the, the physical changes that will happen as part of, you know, replacing the HVAC, HVAC system mm-hmm. and some of the electricals means that we have an opportunity to kind of reassess some of the renovations that were done, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago hmm. um, that might have implications on how we interpret the house. Huh. Um, so just one right. kind of quick example is there was a, a modern chimney that was installed in the mid-60s, um, you know, to, to provide exhausting for the furnace that was installed at the time. And in order to install that chimney, um, it required basically removing an old, what we would call a service staircase or a back staircase um, that was probably at the time at least a century old, and it connected a first-floor kitchen up to a second-story attic space. Um, and actually, that attic space, based on oral history and what we know about the era and how a household like this would have f- functioned, right. it's very likely that it was really kind of an informal living and sleeping quarters for enslaved um, members of this household. And in fact, that's how we interpret it today mm. for our visitors. So the opportunity that may arise for us to be able to, say, reinstate that that rear staircase and kind of reconfigure how we even interpret that sort of uh, the history of labor and how space was used in the yeah. house is a really exciting one. And so that's, this is really, that's really wrapped up. This is yeah. really an opportunity, uh, a big opportunity for, for a lot of rethinking, which is, uh, which is great to, to, to hear. Well, thank you, Maggie, yeah, very absolutely. much for joining us. Um, and uh, we look forward to the fruition of your project. Thank, thank you. you, David. Thanks for having me. Yes, you're more than welcome. We'll be right back after this short break.
If you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and the July 2023 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, a monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Our program today, Good to Great, Transforming Cultural Organizations, celebrates the nine recipients in our region of the Good to Great grants designed to make significant capital improvements to organizations' facilities and to their offerings to the public. Our guests today are Sibel Malone, the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum, Peter Gisterlink, the Avon Theatre Film Centre, Kathy Marr, the Barnum Museum, Tracy Kay, the Bartlett Arboretum and Gardens, Howard Lasser, Brookfield Craft Centre, Hilary Whitman, Carriage Barn Art Centre, Claire Murray, Carty, Maggie Dimmock, Greenwich Historical Society, and Steve DiCostanzo, General Manager here at the WPKN radio station in Bridgeport. Now we travel north to Brookfield and Howard Lasser, who is Executive Director of the Brookfield Craft Centre. Welcome, Howard, and congratulations on the grant. Thank you, David. I gather Brookfield is really one of the top craft schools in the country, teaching both traditional and contemporary crafts. Can you tell us very briefly a, a little bit about its evolution since its founding in 1952? Well, <clears throat> yes, this is our 71st year. Uh, our goal, as you know, is to preserve fine craft. Um, and over the years, we have evolved. You know, we have... Uh, we actually have six buildings, three of which are uh, historic buildings on a campus of about two and a half acres um, located in Brookfield. We have nine studios where we teach various crafts from uh, glasswork, uh, woodworking, wood turning, jewelry making, pottery, um, and uh, blacksmith and a blacksmith forge. Uh, and a few years ago, we added what we call our Center for Modern Craft, where we oh. have various computers. Uh-huh. Uh, and teach various digital skills. That's excellent. So tell us um, how you will be using your Good to Great funds. Uh, well, we have two projects in mind. Uh, well, we have two, two projects <laughs> that we'll be using the funds for. Yeah. One is, I mentioned, we have a blacksmith forge, and the piece of equipment that we've been missing for uh, to make this really a fabulous um, um, facility is a power hammer. And by adding that power hammer, it will effectively, you know, it, it's used to, um, in the forge welding process, uh, blacksmiths used to create knives, blades, and more. Mm-hmm. And with this tool, we could be able to reach, uh, teach classes like small anvil making, large axes, and other projects. Uh, so that's, uh, it will enhance our, uh, our offerings to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, improve uh, our, our programmatic um, situation. And we're looking forward to having that uh, power hammer in place um, probably by the end of the summer. Oh, fantastic. Um, so that's... The other <laughs> project that we're going to be using is we have a wood turning studio. Uh, and uh, I'm not a wood turner, but I'm told <laughs> by those who are uh, that it is one of the best studios already in the state. Uh, we have six seven, seven lathes, uh, six for students, one for the teacher. It's outfitted with various video equipment so people can watch the um, the, the demonstration on the teaching um, uh, lathe. But what we'll be adding is a quieter and more efficient uh, dust collection system. Uh, this is a state-of-the-art system that will provide a more healthful and environmentally uh, safe 
um, and uh, situation and improve the teaching um, uh, opportunities in the in the studio. So it's really on, in two different areas. You're making a significant um, upgrade. Uh, yes, to make I mean, your this is two that um, that we picked out this year, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and and hopefully the good to great will be available again in the future. We right. have more projects in mind, um, but this year these were the ones that were really pretty ready to go. Well, congratulations. Howard, um, and thank you for joining us today. And I hope people will um, make the effort to go visit, come visit yeah, the Brookfield well, Craft Center. Thank you, David, for the excellent job you do as executive director <laughs> well, of the thank you. Couch Alliance of Fairfield. Okay, thank you, Howard. Thank you. Take care. Now we go to New Canaan and the Carriage Barn Art Center with its executive director, Hilary Whitman. Welcome, uh-huh. Hilary. Hi, David. Thank you. So, um, Hilary, the Carriage Barn is part of the Waveney Estate in New Canaan, originally the country estate of the Lapham family, with a park designed by the Olmsted brothers and a host of recreation facilities, the art centre, the powerhouse theatre. Can you tell us briefly about the history of the Carriage Barn and the New Canaan Society for the Arts? Yes, yes. We are so fortunate to have such a beautiful facility as our home and, and the wonderful location of Waveney Park, which just attracts so many visitors from, you know, beyond New Canaan and the area. Um, the Carriage Barn Arts Center was the original uh, carriage house uh, for the estate. And when the entire park and estate was given to the town in the 60s, um, the carriage barn building um, just sort of sat vacant for about 10 years and was really um, falling apart and and no one was really sure what to do with it. And a group of local artists and art supporters proposed turning it into an art center. So Mm -hmm. um, it was really created, you know, by as a grassroots effort by um, local artists and has been operated as an art center and gallery for 45 years since then. That's great. Um, and how long have you been at the Carriage Barn yourself? I've been at the Carriage Barn since uh, 2016, fall of 2016. Um, and we've really, you know, really have uh, made an effort with the whole team to just raise the profile and mm. kind of raise the um, number of activities and, you know, awareness of the Carriage Barn and just adding you know, new kinds of exhibits and programs that will just draw and attract, you know, more people and keeping the space really vibrant and active. And um, I just visited again quite recently and was very impressed by recent physical improvements you've made. You've got a new office space. You've got um, a number of um, great improvements. uh, At the end of 2021, we completed a a renovation um, working together with the town of New Canaan, which owns the building. Um, But we worked with them to to put into place a really transformative renovation. We um, added a new multi-purpose sort of educational programming room um, for meetings and and classes. We added air conditioning to the building so that we're (laughs) now, you know, fully a year-round. That's great, um, yeah facility, and then also brought some of our facilities up into sort of ADA compliance. And tell us briefly about your Good to Great project and how it will change how we experience the space. Yes. So um, 
really as a result of the, the renovation I just mentioned, over the last year since we completed that, we have quadrupled the number of programs that we do at the Carriage Barn. And everything that we're doing and offering, um, there's just been a fantastic response to and sort of demand for these kinds of programs. So we're looking to wait for ways to how, you know, we can sort of go to the next level and further expand what we're able to do. Um, so we had proposed and, and received funding through this grant to uh, renovate and enhance the 1,500 square foot courtyard space. So it is sort of the exterior courtyard of the carriage barn that is really the main entrance into the carriage barn gallery. Mm. And it's a space that really links the art center to Waveney Park, but um, we also sort of envision it becoming a space that will really engage and draw people into the carriage barn and, and allow them to sort of engage with right. programming um, outdoors. Yeah, great opportunity. Well, congratulations on the grant, Hillary, and um, mm-hmm. thank you for joining us today. And uh, thank you look so forward much. to seeing you again soon. Thank okay. you. Yeah, bye-bye. Thanks. We'll be back after this short break. If you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our July 2023 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture. Our program today, Good to Great, Transforming Cultural Organizations, celebrates the nine recipients in our region of the Good to Great grants designed to make significant capital improvements to organizations' facilities and their offerings to the public. Now, for our sixth guest, we're heading out to Shelton, where the mobile art phenomenon Carti is based. And we're delighted to have Carti's founding executive director, Claire Murray, with us on the phone. Welcome, Claire. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, well, great, great that you can join us. Uh, now, Carti is a unique phenomenon in our area that has really taken off very successfully. Tell us, uh, please, what Carti is and what inspired you to create this amazing organization? Sure thing. In 2019, we we founded this phenomenon, as you're calling it, <laughs> um, and, and more formally established in 2020, right, you know, a month before everything in uh, our right. state and our country and our world yeah. shut down. What we had happened upon was, was these two needs in our state. On the one hand, 
There's, you know, over 109,000 pre-K through second grade students across our state who who have some pretty limited access to, to the arts and education. And in those formative years, going to a museum is something that maybe we don't talk about enough, but that's what we aim to do. We also identified this other need um, that there's so many, you know, incredible student artists across our state, middle school, high school, and above, um, who are hungry for spaces to exhibit their art. And so what we came up with was this, this model where we could retrofit a school bus and really try and transform what, what it is that we tend to think of when it comes to museum education. So mm. we, we purchased the school bus, we gutted it, we turned it into a little <laughs> art museum gallery where we could show on an annual basis a juried art exhibition of high schoolers' art from across our state, um, making sure we've got a diverse representation of, mm-hmm. of high school students, um, a really awesome mastery, and, and something that, you know, we can ignite something then when we travel this mobile art museum bus around the state to pre preschools and elementary schools with limited access to the arts and education, um, something that could ignite in these young children uh, really positive, prolonged early experiences with museum-based learning so they can you know, become familiar, comfortable in museum environments, develop their critical and creative thinking dispositions that are so necessary to, to their, you know, all of our 21st century success, yes. um, and just grow that love for the arts and culture and wind up at all these other institutions we're learning about today. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, congratulations again just on uh, inventing this um, phenomenon and uh, your, your success so, so far. So tell us about your funded project. Yes. So, you know, our bus is 28 feet wide, long, 8 feet wide, kind of, you know, 10 feet tall. Not huge, right? Um, but in that space, everything everything matters. Um, right. We're committed to making sure that every young child in our state has a really exciting, meaningful introduction to the art museum, the world of art museums and the, and, and, and the art museum experience. And so already we're serving hundreds of, of neurodiverse children and community members and that's just increasing, right? The more we, we get our word out and, and we offer this program, um, we want to make sure that we, we meet students where they are. Um, and so accessibility is top of mind for us. Uh-huh. This grant is going to help us bring in three consultant teams um, where we'll start with we're just making sure, you know, we're ADA compliant. And I know that's so, so um, basic. There's so much more to accessibility. So then we're going to go further than that um, and, and make sure that we can become a certified autism center, that we can wow. become, our design can become really human-centered. Mm. Um, and once we have these consultant teams come in, we'll, we'll be able to implement all the changes that, you know, maybe if there's there may be some that are minute, but there also may be some pretty significant ones. Um, we already have our wheelchair lift, but there's so much more that goes into the, the accessibility of a space. Right. And we can't wait to get started. This sounds like a perfect op- opportunity, a perfect example of an organization going from good to really great. Um, and I, r- I really congratulate you on, on this project and um, um, good luck <laughs> with it in the future, Claire. Very nice to talk to you. Um, and we'll see you soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much, David. Sure. Now, our last visit by phone is back to Stamford and to Tracy Kay, who is the Executive Director of the Bartlett Arboretum and Gardens in North Stamford, just north of the Merritt Parkway. Good morning, or good afternoon, Tracy. 
Welcome. Good afternoon, David. How are you doing? I'm uh, doing well, thank you. Now, you joined the Arboretum just two years ago, right? Almost two years ago to, uh, go to the date, basically. Okay. Yes. It's my second now, anniversary. The honeymoon's over. <laughs> well, this is also, um, I gather, a pretty unique institution in our region. Uh, we have very limited time, but can you tell us a little about the evolution of the, the origins and the evolution of the Bartlett and what you offer to the public today? Sure. The, the, the Arboretum was uh, founded as a public institution in 1965, basically preserving the Arboretum and research facilities started by Francis Bartlett in 1913. Um, it's now, it was operated from 1965 through about 2003 by the University of Connecticut in partnership with the Bartlett Arboretum Association. And then in 2003, it was ownership was transferred from UConn to the city of Stanford, and the Arboretum Association provides the programming on the site. So we're open to the public 365 days a year, um, free of charge, and as you said, just north of the Merritt Parkway. Um, But we also do a number of community events, cultural activities, and things along those lines. But one of our big efforts is uh, the education program we do with all the Stanford schools. Uh And that's where our facility now combines about 93 acres and has um, over 13 gardens and a large collection of trees and shrubs for us to do outdoor exploration. And tell us about, you got a pretty substantial capital project, $500,000 grant. Tell us about um, what you plan to do. We have a pretty substantial project. No, it's, yeah, it's uh, we've had an aging greenhouse, and it's highly energy and inefficient. And we want to replace that greenhouse with a more state-of-the-art facility to support our education programs and uh, the community garden plant propagation things that we do. And it's been an effort, ongoing effort. We have some funding from the city, uh, some funding from uh, private individuals, but this good to great grant really puts us over the top. And we hopefully, uh, all things line up, we can start construction as early as this fall. Mm-hmm. The challenge for us is we have an existing greenhouse with a plant collection. And oh. when we start this construction, we have to make sure we're maintaining our collection up to standard. So we have to find some homes for some of our plants during uh, the time because hmm. we have to dismantle the existing uh, greenhouse structure to make room for the new complex that we're creating. But all Is this that a call down, for uh, people offering <laughs> who could offer sure, homes sure. for your plants? We have high ceilings. We have a few cacti that we can uh, <laughs> loan out for a while. Uh-huh. But we are working with some of our partners That's and great. hopefully we can preserve. And, and the other feature that this creates is right now it's, we just have a working greenhouse, but this project will provide us with not just a working greenhouse, but also a conservatory, so it will open our collections to the public on a more regular basis. Wonderful. Well, um, good luck with the project, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, enjoying your new glass house in a couple of years. Well, we'll see you here. Yes, great. Okay, thank you very much, Tracy. Now, at last, back to the studio, where we welcome Kathy Marr, Executive Director of the Barnum Museum, that was built way back in 1893 and today celebrates the life of P.T. Barnum and his connection with Bridgeport. Kathy, the building itself is really a a magnificent construction. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, and I gather you're working to have it listed as a National Historic Landmark? We have been working for 19 years. No kidding. It came (laughs) on, it was was set to be a, a National Historic Landmark, 
And then the tornado hit and it was taken off. And then in the former administration, the entire National Park's landmark program was dismantled. <laughs> and then they put it back together again. So in August, finally, after no, no kidding, I, 19 years, the building should finally be Bridgeport's very first Fantastic. National Historic Landmark. Next month. Next All month. Right. So I'm... Hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn, so everybody's right. sending good vibes right. <laughs> that they won't postpone it again. So, so anyway. now, of course, your job is focused on this amazing collection that you've got, but recent history has forced your time and attention on the building itself. Um, we're pretty short on time, but can you give us a very brief thumbnail of what this building has been through in the last decade? Oh, my God. So, um, it, yeah, so so the building is actually the most significant artifact. We yeah. have accessioned it under mm. the New Orleans Charter. So everything that we're doing is getting very, very documented. But, yeah, um, it has never, in its 130 years, it's never really had a major uh, structural assessment. Mm. So when the tornado hit, it gave, <laughs> let's call it an opportunity to really kind of go in and really determine what is happening with this very complicated building. Now you and said tornado, but you've had yeah, what, two tornadoes and a hurricane? Uh, one tornado and two, <laughs> two hurricanes. hurricanes. Okay. <laughs> and then we were ready to go in 2019 um, with this project. And then we had a global pandemic. Yeah. So everything was put on pause. And uh, even though construction was deemed essential in the state of Connecticut, you know, thank you to the governor, the, because it's still on the National Register, the SHPO office could not come out and evaluate because everything that we do has to get blessed. They have to look at the bricks right. and the mortars and the everything. Right. So we're there now. And of course, the good to great project that we have right now is because of the cost escalations due to COVID, yeah. we had to pull certain projects out as alternates and the magnificent doors of the historic building, because you can access them without massive scaffolding, they were pulled out. And when good to great presented itself, thank you, Kinetic Humanities, I can't stress mm. that enough, we were able to um, bring that specific project to the, to the table. How many for doors? Um, there, well, there are door packages. There are a couple that are double doors. Mm. Um, the two balcony point doors, a lot of folks don't even know they're there, and then a north face door as well. So, um, And they have stained glass, and they all are completely different. So. Oh. Yeah, so that's really what we're going to be doing. So then it will be put back in because we are really now in the probes and, and the mock-up phase of a $5.5 million project. So this way we're able to build on that. We, we also got funding from the National Parks through a Save America's Treasures grant to do the windows because oh. there's 79 windows and that's another $500,000. So a, this is a big building. Right. <laughs> it's a complicated right. building. So um, we couldn't be more grateful for this. this and you're, you're still open. Um, we will, in some capacity, at some point. Um, one to, thing about the good to great grant, it's got to go through the vetting process. It has to go. We yeah. all have to go through a bidding process, and that takes time. So our start date and our finish date is really at the mercy of how fast we can go through the contracts. They get state reviews and... The but it's great agree. to see there is now scaffolding around the building, oh which God, right? indicates that there is real progress. We've been doing so much, <laughs> I know, inside. It has been so much. I mean, we had to save 20,000 artifacts. So it's been it's been a lot of work, but now it's visible well, from the street. congratulations. So. Thank you. And we are eager to see the results, as I, I'm sure you are. Oh, my goodness. And I got to say congratulations to Stephen WPKM because he's sitting over here on my right side. So I get to say it first. And congratulations, everybody. 
So now, yes, I'm thrilled to be able to include Steve DiCostanzo in this pantheon. Steve is the general manager here at PKN and the host for our monthly Spotlight programs, which we're really grateful, mm, Steve. Great. Well, it's now, good to have you here. PKN is really on the move these days. Um, I'm thinking of that famous August 2021 article in The New Yorker calling PKN the greatest radio station in the world. Yeah, that and was, that was fun. And your epochal move from the old quarters at the University of Bridgeport to brand new studios in the heart of downtown Bridgeport, next door to the Bijou. Now you've won, of these, won one of these highly competitive grants, Steve. Tell us about this project that was funded and what about your vision for the future of this community radio mm. station that um, inspired the project. Yeah, good. Well, I know I've got just a couple minutes. So, yeah. uh, so I think Good to Great started with our move to downtown Bridgeport. And certainly, uh, it, yeah. you, you you talked about uh, also the uh, the article in the New Yorker, which was just I- incredible. It's our 60th uh, anniversary, and we thought, uh, like other uh, kind of old types of media, that we need to reimagine ourselves as well, right? Uh-huh. As a radio station, so we requested a grant that would allow us to expand our radio. Uh, into the streets and and into <laughs> the uh, the many communities that we serve, from Fairfield County to New Haven County and Litchfield, and uh-huh. even into New London. So we specifically uh, our request, and it was kind of a long shot. We thought it was a long shot, uh, but we're so happy it's it's been funded. Our our ask was that we wanted to have an all electric radio station van on wheels that would allow us uh, to go into these communities that are underserved. Mm -hmm. And so we're calling it the WPKN Soundmobile. And it's going to, again, electric vehicle, we're going to have audio equipment, and we're going to be able to get to important uh, ethnic festivals and parades, uh, uh, the festivals like the International Festival Arts and Ideas in New Haven, uh, the Nice Festival in Norwalk, mm-hmm. and all kinds of great parades from Juneteenth to Puerto Rican Day parades to Pride parades. So have a more um, immediate visibility to all these communities that it, otherwise it's been difficult to get to. That's great. Uh, so you uh, did you say 60 years? 60 years. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that something? 60 year anniversary. That's going to be uh, we have a, our gala on November 4th. But uh, it's just been it's really been great to be down here. We could not uh, thank uh, CT Humanities more. Uh, they have been very gracious to mm-hmm. us. Uh, since we've been downtown, uh, you know, I just feel like we've been more <laughs> discovered uh, uh-huh. uh, being out of right. UB and being downtown. And there's such a uh, great creativity here. You've got a, a wide range of uh, uh, of speakers. It, of it is remarkable. I mean, you think about 130 uh, volunteers huh. and programmers who are involved with this radio station and most of those people are unpaid. It's just passion and it's uh, tr- try to be authentic and try to reimagine again uh, with video and podcasting and what a radio station can be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I like uh, just just because we were talking to Carty, which is taking the, a museum for for kids on the road hmm. um, and this sort of uh, theme of mobility and of getting out, not just letting people come in, right. 
but getting out to a wider yeah, which is for us it's so important because again we're we're based in Bridgeport, but but we really our communities are all the way up to Litchfield, and we even have uh, an incredible signal that goes over to uh, Suffolk County. So that's great. Uh, it's it's hard for us as a volunteer group to to be everywhere. So this is the sound. Our WPCAN Soundmobile will be a, a step in the right direction. When will we see it? Well, the hope is uh, we've got a deposit on, yeah. on an e-vehicle, and wow. it looks like, I would say, uh, probably mid-fall to Fantastic. later fall. We'll look yeah. forward to that. Well, there we have to leave it. Congratulations to all of you on the show today. We look forward to seeing your projects coming to fruition, and perhaps we'll be able to revisit you to check in on the results of this grant, grant funding. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. You've been listening to our July 2023 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, a monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Our program today, Good to Great, Transforming Cultural Organizations, celebrated the nine recipients in our region of the Good to Great grants designed to make significant capital improvements to organizations' facilities and to their offerings to the public. Our guests today were Sibel Malone with the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield, Peter Gisterlink with the Avon Theatre Film Centre in Stamford, Kathy Marr with the Barnum Museum, Bridgeport, Tracy Kay with the Bartlett Arboretum and Gardens in Stamford, Howard Lasser with the Brookfield Craft Centre, Hilary Whitman with the Carriage Barn Art Centre in New Canaan, Claire Murray with Carty based in Shelton, Maggie Dimmock with the Greenwich Historical Society, and Steve D. Costanzo, general manager here at the WPKN radio station in Bridgeport. You can hear the show again on WPKN podcasts on SoundCloud. I'm David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. Please tune in Monday, August 14th at noon for the next edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture. Support for WPKN comes from the Litchfield Jazz Festival. The festival will be held at the Frederick Gunn School in Washington, Connecticut from July 28th through the 30th. On Friday night, the gala features the Brandon Goldberg Trio. The David DeJesus Latin Jazz Band plays the Sunday Jazz Brunch. Featured Saturday performers include the Peter Bernstein Quartet, the Champion Fulton Trio, Ehud Asheri, the Steve Nelson Quartet, and others. More info and tickets at litchfieldjazzfestival.com. Support for WPKN comes from Save the Sound, leading environmental action in our region. From Connecticut's Litchfield Hills to Long Island's North Shore, Save the Sound partners with individuals and communities to fight climate change, save endangered lands, protect the sound and its rivers, and work with nature to restore ecosystems. More information on how to get involved is at savethesound.org. What does a sentient species of octopuses, a conscious android, and the exploitation of our oceans have in common? They're all part of a great environmental sci-fi novel called Mountain in the Sea. The author, Ray Naylor, joins me later today on Digging in the Dirt at 5 p.m. to talk about what is artificial and non-human intelligence and why life only has meaning in the interconnectedness of humans, plants, animals, and machines on listener-supported WPKN. This is FC Buzz. 
on WPKN Radio. A brief look at what's happening around Fairfield County. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our weekly selection from FC Buzz Events, the best guide to arts and culture in coastal Fairfield County. Find it at culturalalliancefc.org. Tuesday at 7 and through July 29th, the Westport Country Playhouse opens Dial M for Murder, a story about a devious husband, his wealthy wife and her lover. This edge-of-your-seat classic thriller has been brilliantly adapted by playwright Jeffrey Hatcher, who's created even more surprises and diabolic twists than the celebrated Hitchcock film. From the original play by Frederick Knott, directed by Mark Lemos. Tuesday, 6 o'clock at the Milford Green. It's opening night for the Fairfield County Dance Festival. Join East Coast Contemporary Ballet and Thomas Ortiz Dance for the first of eight summer evenings during the month of July of inspiring and diverse dance in Fairfield County's very own dance festival. After Milford, with Alison Cook Beatty Dance as guest performers, you can catch the festival in New Canaan, Stamford, Fairfield, Bridgeport, Norwalk, Darien, and Westport with other guest performers. For details on these and hundreds more events, check FC Buzz Events at culturalalliancefc.org. This was FC Buzz on WPKN Radio. I'm Ralph Baskin, a WPKN volunteer supporting sustaining members in our member card program. I've spoken to many of you during fund drives. Sustaining membership is one of the best ways you can support WPKN, helping us budget and plan better to provide more of what you expect from the best radio station in the world. There's a benefit of sustaining membership that gives something back to you. The WPKN member card. You get two-for-one dining offers and other savings opportunities across our area. There are travel benefits for car rentals, hotels, and theme parks, too. If you live outside our area, you can also find offers where you live. Benefits are automatic for a donation of $15 or more per month and are in addition to any gift or premium you already received. Member cards renew every year you remain a sustaining member. Questions or issues with your sustaining membership? Email me at membercard at wpkn.org. If you're already a sustaining member, thank you. If not, please consider it by going to wpkn.org and clicking the red Donate button. Alcoholics Anonymous has helped millions of people escape their addiction to alcohol and discover new lives filled with meaning and purpose. You can find an AA meeting in Connecticut by calling 1-866-783-7712 in New York, 212-647-1680 in New York City, or by going online to aa.org. You're listening to WPKN Bridgeport. 89.5 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org.